So last week we started this series called The Path of Jesus, which in some ways is what we're always doing in the series that we're always in no matter what we're talking about. But I mentioned and I set up our moment, uh, for those of you familiar with the story of the disciples on the road to Emmaus. Everything has fallen apart. They are disillusioned, disoriented. They are leaving home base in Jerusalem. Jesus has been crucified. They don't believe the rumors that he's risen again. And he is headed towards Emmaus. Or they are headed towards Emmaus. And then Jesus, sort of hidden from them, shows up along the way and asks them this question, what are you talking about? And that question had a bit of a prophetic or something ring to it for me. And so I posed the question last week, in your disillusionment and disorientation and the strangeness of this season, in any ways that you may be kind of up the road walking away from Jesus, what have you been talking about? In all of the cultural conversation and cultural chaos around us, what have you been talking about? And has Jesus been at the center of that conversation? And so the series... Is meant to be this jump off from that question. What are we talking about? There's a lot of things that people are talking about. What does it look like to engage the poor? What does true justice look like? How do we wrestle with this moment of deconstruction where we have so much information around us and so many are, are being tossed back and forth? And we had some resolve, our team, and why I shared what I shared last week to make sure that for this season what we are doing is talking about the compelling and beautiful person of Jesus and that that is front and center. And so I say that and that with all the topics that we're going to get into, hot button or not, what we want to have be our starting point is Jesus. And so I'm just committed to give the most clear and compelling pictures of Jesus and the path that he lays out for us in light of some of these big things happening in our world this fall. So if last week was like setup one, this is like setup part two. And hopefully it'll make sense why I'm sharing some of this, which I think will be a refresher for some, but why it's so critically important in a conversation about stepping onto the path of Jesus. So if I had to give this message a title, it'd be like the path of doing or the path of practice maybe is a better title. So Romans 12, this passage that we just stood and listened to, ends with do not be conformed to the patterns of this world. Imagine you are a first century Christian. You're in Rome. You're in a home church. And this letter comes to you. Someone stands up in the meeting, probably over the meal, and begins to read, hey, Paul, Paul wrote us a letter. When you came across this line, far be it for me to be able to climb perfectly into the mind of a person sitting in first century Rome. But it's important to point out that you would not have thought of, as you're thinking about the patterns of the world, you wouldn't have thought of one immediate social or political issue when hearing those words. You would have, just like today, been overwhelmed with the reality that everything in your life the stories that are being told, the institutions, the values, the practices, the lifestyle, all revolve around helping conform you into being a good Roman citizen. Not one thing in particular, but everything in general. Let me say that again. Not one thing in particular, but kind of everything. The patterns and ways and paths that exist everywhere in the place 
of Rome. They're pressing you into its mold. And just like for the United States, or whether it's, it's you thinking in terms of Western culture, or even being a global citizen, the goal of a good Roman citizen was to embody Rome's values, to be an icon or a small image of the empire as a whole. Rome was forming people in particular kinds of ways. Caesar was Lord. Uh, the way that we make um, peace is through power and domination and militarism. The way that um, we engage in entertainment. Any of you who've ever seen any movie of that era, uh, you know it was filled with just rampant wild sexuality and violence. Rome was forming people economically to believe that the poor were essentially commodities. The question always before us, always, every generation is in whose image are we being remade? In whose image are we being remade? So I've used this phrase before over the years and I find it to be incredibly helpful to acknowledge that we live in contested space. The world is not neutral. There are competing political regimes and economic regimes and cultural and spiritual regimes that are trying to claim and counterclaim and reclaim who you are. One way to put the, uh, get at this would just sort of be acknowledging that there's just things in the air that depending on what you focus your attention to, onto who you follow, how you were raised, the environments you were raised in, there's just something that's sort of everywhere that is pushing us into a particular mold. We see this in globalization a lot, right? Like, why is it that um, you can go to kind of every major city in the world and you'll find, like, what Justin Bieber, like, just wore last season is now, like, the hot trend, just to pick on a celebrity. Right? There's something about that's shaping, actually, a particular sort of person in a particular arena in global cities. Ever. Why is it that you can walk into most global cities and you'll find, like, that part of the city with that restaurant that doesn't have a big sign on it, but there's a lot of taxidermy and it's really red and they have specialty cocktails and everything on the menu is, like, tipped in just a funny way and it's got the same Euro, Euro trash Helvetica in the menu. Anyone know what I'm talking about? Global cities in very different parts of the world all have this same thing. We're being shaped and molded. These are sort of silly examples. Another one would be like my eight-year-old recently asking her some question. I don't remember what it was. And she responded with, oh, yeah, whatever, Dad. Whatever. Where did you hear that? Where did you hear that phrase? And she paused, considered it, and just went like, I don't know. It's like everywhere. Like It's like like, I don't, I don't know. It wasn't like a moment where someone sat me down and was like, here's how you respond to this. Just say whatever. It's just sort of in, in the air. Anyone who has like a, a little kid or been around little kids, you get you're surprised at what they actually pick up on. You get sort of surprised all of a sudden when they regurgitate back to you something that you said. Um, my, uh, my youngest, or sorry, my middle child, Rowan, she has taken to doing this when she's even remotely frustrated about anything. I was like, why is she doing this a lot? So I go to my wife, Corey, and I ask her, hey, um, where do you think Ron's picking this up from? And she looks at me and she goes, are you serious? <laughs> this is the, the air that she is breathing and the water she is swimming in. Contested space. Paul is asking the Romans to consider the larger forces the whatevers, 
that formed people into Romans, and he wanted them to consider how Jesus transformed Romans into Christians. Rome is interested in Romanizing, and to be the follower of Jesus is interested in being Christianized. For us, rather than simply asking, and this is something that's so important for us as we consider growing in the way of Jesus. Because if you're here, I'm guessing there's some part of you, however small, actually wants to be transformed into the way of Jesus. Even those of you who are here who are not followers of Jesus, you're sort of vaguely intrigued. There's something that I'm sure if I were to lay out, like read the Gospels to you, read the stories of Jesus and his truth-telling and peacemaking, some stuff you'd be like, oh, that's too much. But other things you're like, wow, can you really live like that? Can you be that alive? Are the claims of Jesus true? We want to be formed into his way. Before we do that, before we ask the question, how might I be transformed into somebody like Jesus? I think we have to first ask, what makes us us? Like instead of asking, how do we um, make Americans Christian? We first need to ask, what makes Americans American? What makes you, you? And then decipher how Jesus can transform Americans or people of Western culture, wherever you find yourself, into followers of Jesus. The French philosopher Michael Foucault he calls this the shaping of people, calls the shaping of people into a mold. He calls it the normalization of the individual. The normalization of the individual. Think about how a couple of these forces press us into the world's view of normal. Because everyone has sort of a what's normal, right? This is just kind of the normal thing. This is, this is, this is what should be normal, even if it's just aspirational. We think about education. So again, I'm just speaking to the followers of Jesus for a minute. And not all these things are implicitly bad, but let's focus on some of the dark sides of these things. Education, all education for the most part, unless you're sending your children to a Christian school or you're at one, is, in, is totally secular. Even in kindergarten, we're realizing this at a very early level, age. There are certain ways of thinking and being about all sorts of different subjects that are being pushed on. That's fine. That's what school is. There are forces wanting to form you into a particular kind of person. How are they forming you? Media, pervasive, right? Pouring story after story into our lives. Instagram, one of the most popular apps in the world, literally calls their, uh, yeah, their thing. The thing with the pushing and the, they call them stories. <laughs> this is your story. I don't know why I blanked. Most of the contradictory, most are completely contradictory to the way of Jesus. What was once sacred has been transformed into entertainment. In most media, truth gets reduced to sound bites. And the sensational drowns out the substantive. For those of you, just in case you're wondering why it feels like there's just so much bad news in the world and why it is having a direct impact on your mental health, this isn't a controversial statement I'm about to make. It is literally because of capitalism. It's just that's, like, that's where the money is. Every study shows bad news makes exponentially more money. More people dial in when the news is bad. Don't get it twisted. This is why we need to like wake up in the morning and have our lives shaped by something other than our news feed. Because it is, it is to some degree, however true and neutral your news sources may be, it is still driven by the market. And you are shaping your life by the negative stories put out that they think will make the most money that morning instead of something more true and beautiful. Hence why Paul is inviting us over and over. Keep your mind on heavenly things. Whatever is pure and true and good and beautiful, set your mind on those things. 
It's not an invitation to be uninformed. It's just to, be, to recognize you're being shaped and molded even when you don't realize it. Marketing. One commentator estimates that we see more advertisements in a single year than someone who lived 50 years ago. Right? We ourselves are being branded. We talk about branding ourselves and our personal brand. Economics. We learn from the earliest years that more is better. Supreme value of life is how much we can acquire. These are things built into us. Right? Even when it comes to folks, I always think this is so great. Just lest you think like you're one of the like, rare folks that aren't pushed, pushed by this. It's like when it comes to economics, or let's talk about like the, engaging the environment and how that intersects with economics. It's like that, that thing, um, you know, I, uh, I really want to help the environment. So instead of having like two SUVs, like I have two hybrids. And it's like that, that odd trick that gets played on you that like, oh, because I now drive two hybrids, I'm helping the environment. Like you're still driving two cars. Never mind. So we're like, I don't get it. I'm helping the environment. Like, sexuality. The message of our culture is that sex is just physical. As long as no one's hurt, it's all good. People can determine their own practices. The rise of pornography has taken sex out of the bedroom and turned it into a form of entertainment. If we can zoom out just far enough, I know pornography is one of like the oldest things in our world, oldest crafts, oldest businesses, but my goodness, if you could zoom far enough out and get perspective, how strange is it that we will sit around and watch other people doing this? It is entertainment, something that scriptures call beautiful and divine and meant to be held sacred. Purpose, we could talk about purpose for a while. It's like your self-esteem is always on the line in the Western culture and how it views purpose because you're gathering all your self-worth externally the buzz of being able to do more and accomplish more. An achievement addict is one of the most common things that are mentioned now in psychology. No different from any other kind of addict. Your self-esteem always on the line. Now, let me be clear. There are some things that are in our world that are helpful and healthy. It's just the acknowledgement. What I'm trying to point out again is that we are constantly being shaped. We're being discipled, if you want to use Christian language, all of the time. James K.A. Smith wrote, Because our hearts are oriented primarily by desire, by what we love. And because those desires are shaped and molded by the habit-forming practices of modern consumerism, i.e. the liturgies of the mall and the market, they directly shape our imaginations and how we orient ourselves to the world. The visions of the good life embedded in these practices become embedded in us through our participation in the rituals and rhythms of these institutions. There are ways of being everywhere. There are paths everywhere. There are patterns all around us that we just slip into. And Paul is pretty clear to the church in Rome, don't be conformed to the, those patterns. They're there. Don't conform to them. Keep an eye out for them. Don't conform to them. Another way to put this, again, is in whose image are you being remade? So this is, in some ways, just an invitation to be sober-minded. In whose image are you being remade? Thomas Merton says this on this subject. He says, if you want to identify me, ask me not where I live, 
or what I like to eat or how I comb my hair. But ask me what I'm living for in detail and ask me what I think is keeping me from living fully the thing that I want to live for. Between these two answers, you can determine the identity of any person. The better the answer they have, the more of a person they are. I love that last line. Ask me not what I'm living for in detail. Ask me what I think is keeping me from living fully the thing I want to live for. Because as a follower of Jesus, how you live is what you really believe. Everything else is just talk. So it's no surprise to most of you, but Jesus actually gives a lot of commands. It's not just do whatever you want as long as you're sincere and I'll see you in heaven. The invitation from Jesus often is to go and do. To engage in a different way of being in the world. We're fooling ourselves to think that just because we understand something, we have actually lived it. Just because we take in some information means it's actually forming and transforming us and pushing back against the ways that we are being formed by the world around us. The path of Jesus, like to truly step onto the path of Jesus, to be transformed by the renewing of our minds means we need to obey him through tangible practices. This is what is central to us pushing back against the things that would form us into some other image that is less than beautiful. Too often, our ways of thinking about being transformed, which, by the way, is just one way of saying, like, again, being shaped in the way of Jesus. They're individualistic and information-driven and sort of disconnected from the details of our lives. Anyone feel this? We just sort of like cognitively ascent. I know I use that phrase all the time. Like we, we, we sort of, we, we rise to these noble truths. And if we believe these facts about how good God is or what he's loving or memorize some verses or adhere to sort of a worldview, we can act like that as having sort of serious impact on our formation. It is simply just one step. We're not experiencing the kind of transformation that is historically expected in the way of Jesus. And if Jesus demonstrated and taught a revolutionary way of love that is actually possible, then we need a path for experiencing that revolution in our daily lives. We need to recover a sense of immediacy and action in our spiritual practices. So I want to humbly submit that we need a path for discipleship that's more like a karate studio than a lecture hall. Looks a little bit more like a dojo than it does simply a place where you're listening to a talking head. Many of us have spent years, I think, in spaces, those of you who grew up in church, where you've been around good teaching, you've been around small groups, where important topics were talked about, you could be honest, but that was it. What we're saying, if that's the only way that we're engaging the way of Jesus, is that thinking, talking, and knowing will automatically lead to the sort of transformation that God invited us, or invites us into. I've often wondered, I say that sort of in a silly way, because this is what we do in our home churches, or what we desire to do, is that instead of 
getting together and talking more about prayer, we get together and we pray. Instead of getting together and talking more, like let's say after a Sunday message about compassion and engaging the work of joining God and the renewal of all things, of mercy and justice, instead of getting together in our home church then and talking about it more and looking at another passage, we actually get up and we go do it. And then we come back and we talk about how it went, just like Jesus does with his disciples over and over again. Instead of just talking to people about our struggles, we commit to a path with someone else for change and for accountability. Again, our home churches are meant to be one of those contexts. This could be your family, marriage, people you roll with. You encourage each other to move from just information into shared actions and shared practices. The philosopher uh, and theologian Dallas Willard once said that to experience the kingdom of God, a group of people should get together and simply try to do the things that Jesus instructed his disciples to do. <laughs> I guess I didn't need to quote like a philosopher and theologian to like drive that point home. If you want to experience the kingdom of God, and let's be really clear for all those that are getting a little like itchy. Is he talking about works, not faith? This is gospel-centered. Right? God, we say this often, God is never inviting us to earn something. God is not in the business of earning. He meets you right where you are at. You are loved right where you are at. God says, come receive the free gift of grace that I have for you. This is part of the good news of the gospel. But God, though opposed to earning, is not opposed to effort and that is over and over and over and over in the scriptures. Inviting people then to step in. You don't have to earn anything, but you can absolutely like not experience the fullness and richness of life with me, of the kingdom of God here and now. So I think we need a space to practice. We need to make this a priority as we head into the fall, talking about these compelling, compelling images of who Jesus is. If we're serious about wanting to grow and walk in greater freedom, I mean, I could come at you for the next two months with like my best takes and the most like hopefully beautiful like exercises in, 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 in teaching and speaking. And my goodness, it will only do so much. There is something about actually stepping into the path and onto the path of Jesus that has such a dramatically different and more beautiful effect on our lives and in our hearts than anything else. We need a space to practice. And by that I mean a space to do the stuff, to experiment and walk it out together, to apply the teachings of Jesus to the details of our life like a dojo. A space where we can work out the vision and teachings of Jesus together in real life. In Japanese, the word dojo literally means place of the way. Place of the way. And again, it's used to describe a school or a practice space for the martial arts. Theoretically, though, a dojo could be created for any skill or discipline. You could have a knitting dojo, a cooking dojo. You could have a Jesus one. The important distinction is an active learning environment. Again, if you're here and you, this sounds a little new or a little funny, 
Like, think of what Jesus does with his disciples all of the time. Come all the way up to Caesarea Philippi, way out of the way of where they were going, because I want to show you something, I want to teach something to you, and then we're going to go practice something. We see this, like, hear the word, do the word, debrief and interpret. And we see this cycle over and over and over again. We have fallen into the trap, especially now in our generational moment, that we think because, I mean, this is what's behind the virtue signaling stuff in so many ways. Because we have agreed with a thing, we actually understand that thing. Because we agree with a worldview We think that's going to actually transform us. This is why people who care so much about love and goodness and justice and like just put this on display all the time on social media. They have time to do that all the time on social media, likely because they're not in the game. They're actually not on the ground with people walking it out. Actually, their budgets look exactly like everybody else. Actually, their personal life has no mercy and no forgiveness and no reconciliation. It's all up here hypothetically with a group of people. We could go down the line of all sorts of social issues. No, to follow the way of Jesus and to actually be transformed again is to step into these places with surrender and practice. He, Jesus teaches his disciples in an embodied way, like mind and like physicality. And that challenges, honestly, a lot of our Western ideas about learning, especially like didactic classroom learning. You cannot learn karate by just watching. You can't. We can't learn to follow Jesus without practicing, practicing to do what he did and taught. He did not just communicate ideas and information, but declared, I am the way, and invited his disciples into a new life that was fueled and inspired by his practice. Risking new ways of being and new ways of doing. He says in Luke 6, the student is not above the teacher, but everyone who is fully trained will be like their teacher. The first followers of Jesus, I don't know if you know this, were called the way. Capital T, capital W. They were named actually by the Romans. Remember, no one set out to start like a new religion. This was a reformation movement of sorts within Judaism. They thought the Messiah had come, and this is the context for the whole New Testament. But they realized, wow, there was something about the way in which they were walking and leading that was like, different from the other Jewish folks. And so outsiders, Romans and Gentiles, they named them. They were like, man, these are folks, folks following the way, following the way. Acts 9, Acts 19, Acts 23, 22, 24, 22. I won't go through all the passages. But all, there's like multiple places, like it's like eight times in the book of Acts where we see their name pop up. The, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, you're part of the way. Oh, yeah, you guys are followers of the way. Oh, we need to get after the followers of the way. The earliest disciples were consistently identified this way. And this is significant because they viewed apprenticeship to Jesus as a way of life. So a Jesus dojo is a space where a group of people wrestles with how to apply the teachings of life to the blood and guts of everyday life. Communities of practice. Families following the path of Jesus. We use these phrases to describe this ancient and enduring phenomenon of whole person apprenticeship to Jesus. Think of when Jesus first came on the scene. We read at the beginning of the book of Mark, the kingdom of God is here. This is his announcement. 
This is like the central part of the gospel. The good news is that the Messiah is here. He is king. And then in response to this invitation, he says what? Kingdom's here. The kingdom is drawn near. He says, repent. Repent and believe the good news. The believe here is that word pistos, which is like a covenantal word. It's not just like a understand it. It's like bind yourself to it. And then that word repent is just to return. Return, turn around. Another transliteration, uh, the message says, time's up. God's kingdom is here. Change your life and believe the message. In other words, turn back to who you were created to be. With Jesus, with the Spirit, dream the whole thing up again. Because as Paul says, there is a new way to be human. Those who first heard this message began making dramatic changes to their lives based on Jesus' call. Remember again, Paul says, don't conform to the patterns of the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Just in case, and forgive me, drill this down one more time, there are those that don't think that this requires effort and an intentionality in your life. Too often, those of us who have a very shallow biblical view of the gospel read that verse like this. They read it like, be trans, like resist, don't be conformed to the patterns of the world. That's right, resist. That's a doing action. But then when it comes to be transformed by the renewing of your mind, for whatever reason, sometimes it's like, just let the reality of grace magically transform you. Just sit back. Again, grace, this powerful place that puts us on the path. You are a child of God. and There's nothing you need to do to earn that. But the invitation here is to do. Don't be, don't be conformed, but you be transformed by the renewing of your mind. You, Roman house church, begin to renew your mind. And we do this in part by actually walking and following after the things that Jesus commanded us to do. One quick example of this we see where we see these dramatic changes find its way into practice and culture. Jesus taught his disciples to sell their possessions and give to the poor in Luke 12, 33. We later find that exact thing happening in the book of Acts. In Acts 2, they were selling, they had a culture and a habit of selling their possessions and goods and they gave to anyone who had need. We still do this today. We read that giving liturgy. How many of you like are a bit tired of the giving liturgy? Or I shouldn't say, it's the wrong way to put it. How many, like, please. How many of you could, could probably say that without the prompts? Without the lyrics on the screen? Yeah, chunk of you. We do this all of the time. That we want to be formed by this. This is how we view our stuff. There's nothing we have that we haven't received. That opening line, enough, which is culled from the pages of Scripture, is meant to say, like, Everything I have is a gift, which means I'm open-handed with every single dollar and every single meal, even if it's just a really old, stale pack of ramen. All of it, everything I have, I'm open-handed about. This culture has developed practices of saying this, but then doing it. There was a home church uh, that I had spoken on generosity one, one day and blessing 
and they decided what they were going to do is fast on the day of their uh, meeting. It's like a Tuesday. You know, fast from breakfast and lunch, anything that they would buy. No, not buying any coffees out. Really simple. Like, we're just not going to, any money that you would spend, you're, you're not going to spend. But you remember, oh, I usually spend about five bucks, excuse me, at Starbucks. Or I usually buy a $10 lunch. And they put it into a jar. And at the end of like, a, I think it was like a month or two, when they'd have sometimes a couple hundred dollars sitting in the jar, they put it in an envelope. They, sometimes I would get a call, hey, do you know anybody in need? Half the time they knew somebody because they were on the ground in their life looking out for opportunities to bless. And they would just drop a couple hundred dollars. I remember one time it was close to $500 on somebody's, like poor, like uh, Matt. They just drop it off. This then began to spread to other home churches. This simple practice. I'm like, we're actually going to get into the guts of this. I'm still telling the story that, like, years later, and still, still, I was reminded of this because last week somebody brought it up. And I was reminded again of just how much of all the goodness that good that that did for the person who was in need, the conversations that that stirred in the hearts of people in that home church was absolutely beautiful. It began to awaken something. The, um, some friends that I journey with, uh, pretty close to him in a little home church with. Now, one of the conversations that we just had last night about like how we might uh, practice the way of Jesus in this season was let's look at John's invitation where he goes, if you want to be awake and alive to the Messiah who's coming, he says to the Pharisees, anything you have two of, sell it so you only have one. Something about like the physical act of generosity, simplicity, getting rid of your stuff, feeling the ache of that will wake you up in a way that you don't even really realize for the Messiah to come. There's something about that will prepare you for the Messiah. You got two of something, get rid of it. And so we're, this is one of the practices we're considering doing this fall. It's just like, let's just do that. Let's take time over the next couple months to begin like offloading. Like let's hit eBay hard and anything we can't like sell, take the money and give to somebody else. Like we will make sure that we, just can, we have to give it away and get rid of it. With an expectation, something about just following the ways of Jesus. There's an expectancy about what God might do in that place. Practices, right? They, they, they unleash something in us. Philippians 4.9. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice and the God of peace will be with you. Practices apparently unleash God's presence in some way. John 14, 21. Anyone who loves me, this is Jesus talking, will obey my teaching. My Father will love them and we will come to them and make our home with them. Apparently practices bring sort of intimacy with God. Again, it's not earning love of God. He's just simply pointing something out. If you really love me, that means you must trust me. You're with me. Then why wouldn't you do the things I'm inviting you to do? I've laid these commands out because they're the words that will bring you most life and freedom and beauty and joy and goodness in your life. This isn't like some like overlord God. See, I told you Christianity is just like all the other ones. No! Come freely. But if you really love me, I mean, you'll do what I, what I asked. And it will unleash something in you and provide a sort of intimacy that you can't imagine. James 1.25, but whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues in it, not forgetting what they had heard, but doing it, they'll be blessed in all they do. So apparently, practicing the way of Jesus, unlike brings a sort of, uh, or unlocks some sort of blessing in your life. You could go on. Practices reveal more of God through other people. 
We read, dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one's ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us, and his love is made complete in us. Practices make the love of God more tangible. This is how we know what love is. Jesus laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. Do you see this? It's not just, I'm going to experience God's love because I sang that song and I had a euphoric moment in worship, which is beautiful and good, and the Spirit will minister to you. You want to go deeper? That love that you're acknowledging, God laid down his life for us, start laying down your life for others, and like maximum yes, (laughs) maximum goodness. You will begin to see something on earth in you. Those practices will make Jesus' love tangible. Jesus says, anyone who chooses to do the will of God will find out whether my teaching comes from God or whether I speak on my own. Something about beginning to practice the way of Jesus. I especially say this to folks who are here, maybe who aren't followers of Jesus or just trying to figure out where they're at or what they believe. Let me encourage you, for all the good reading there is out there, for all the good lectures and talks, if you're truly interested in like, testing this out and feeling this out, just begin to read the Gospels. We can give you a copy of the book of John in there in the prayer room. Or, begin to read, or join a home church and begin to just walk this out with some other people. My goodness, you will find um, an experiment in your lab. Like you, you get to experiment. Like you don't have a whole lot to lose here. Jesus is saying, you'll begin to realize something about who I am if you begin to walk this out, if you begin to live this out. You don't actually have to believe in all of this to begin to practice these things. Through shared practices of obedience, we can know the truth of what Jesus taught about the reality of God's kingdom. Which brings us, as we close, to actually the passage that is probably central, really, to this teaching. Matthew 7, 24 to 27. This comes at the end of Jesus' kingdom manifesto, the Sermon on the Mount. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. Everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man. I heard someone recently ask a a pastor, hey, what do you think about smoking? Is smoking a sin? The pastor kind of had a funny response that I loved. He just said, you know what? It's so funny. Everything always gets framed into like sin and not sin when you're in like Christian world. What if that's not always the right category to ask questions about? And the, the, the person pressed him a little bit more. Like, what are you talking about? He's like, well, can some things just be stupid? It's pretty good, right? Can some things just be, because this is kind of dumb? I, I, I read this. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is and puts them into practice as like a wise man who built his house on the rock. 
The rain came down, the streams rose, the winds blew and beat against the house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice, stupid. Some things are just stupid. Now, I say that humbly to you, knowing that many of you are like, yeah, yeah, that's, that's cute, Pastor, but like, I'm just, I'm not there. That's, that's great. I'm talking to family for a minute. To say yes to Jesus and then to turn and not pay attention to anything that he just clearly instructs us to do and to begin to walk that out and step into that with all the grace and forgiveness and mercy that accompanies like God just meeting us right where we're at. I mean, what a, what a foolish thing to do. I don't want my house to fall down. A lot of people's houses around me are falling down. The winds have come. And people's houses are crumbling. And it's not simply because, according to this here, it's not just because, like, they, oh, they didn't believe the right things. They didn't have the right book, like, logged in when that, like, new way of thinking came. No, it's just they're being transformed, conformed to the patterns of the world. They're, they're not building their house on the, on the rock. They haven't been walking the way of Jesus out. And they think a bunch of ideas in their head that they ascribe to it's going to keep that stuff from knocking the whole thing down, from not living in greater freedom and greater joy and greater beauty. Putting the teachings of Jesus into practice is the difference between safety and destruction, according to this passage. Jesus says, I've come that they might have life and have it to the full. He says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. What if when people thought of sanctuary church, they said things like, those people are truly learning how to walk the path of Jesus? What if our reputation came from the fact that, they were, that those people were serious about learning how to live that life well? And let's be clear, there are places, in the, like right now, just culturally, things in the way of Jesus that will be so unbelievably compelling. You start selling off your stuff, being a peacemaker, walking in like deep, deep joy, and mercy, and you're not somebody who is judgmental and trolling everybody, like somebody walking in that kind of lightness, that will be compelling. There's also some stuff that won't be, for sure. That will push against. It's always the case in every generation. There are things in the way in Jesus that push against our cultural moment and things that make a lot of sense and draw people in. Because, right, we're all made in the image of God and have some sense, it says in the scriptures, of what is true and good and right and what is not. I was asked the other day about what I do, which is a very complicated question because I'm ashamed of what I do. But if someone asks, the, the right person or the wrong person asks what I do, and I say, oh, I'm a pastor, I mean, just watch the conversation like, boom. And so I decided to leave with this. I was like, you know what? And it just kind of came to me quick in a moment. I just wrote, I just said, uh, I, uh, I kind of help people live out the teachings of Jesus. I think I'm going to lead with this one often now. What do you do? Oh, I'm a student at Brown. Oh, cool, yeah. I mean, a big part of though, my life is like just helping people make sense of the way of Jesus as I'm trying to make sense of walking the way of Jesus. Let's try to follow that path. I mean, this conversation just exploded with intrigue and questions and joy. When we begin to do this, and in a moment, I'm going to invite us just to stop 
Like, it's like stop, we're all stopping. I'm gonna invite us to reflect for a moment on what, what things, what practices Jesus might be inviting you into. Because when we begin to do this, like it says at the end of John, it says, I wrote about all these things that Jesus did so that you would know who he actually was. There's a connection between writing about the things that he did and then realizing, oh my gosh, this is who he actually, there's something more here. It reminds me of Gandhi. With Gandhi, I don't know kind of where his journey ended in his life, but there's multiple moments in a bunch of like journals and diaries and some, even I think some public statements that he had made where as he is learning about the way of nonviolence, which if you're unaware of this, like this was Gandhi's claim to fame, which he was discipled by a follower of Jesus into. This is how he came to understand how to engage the Roman Empire in nonviolence was because of the way of Jesus. And Gandhi says multiple times, he goes, man, there was something about this whole way of being in the world that, I mean, Jesus had to have been divine. I point this out as somebody who, I don't know if they, at the end of their life, like, landed fully in being a follower of Jesus, but I point this out that somebody who was raised in a completely different world, conformed by a very different way of thinking about gods and love and life and earning and identity, somebody who is so compelled by this particular aspect of the way of Jesus, then all of a sudden finds himself saying things publicly like, I don't know what to make of the whole Jesus thing. I struggle with Christians because of stuff he saw in his upbringing, but oh my gosh, clearly Jesus was God or a God. Noticing the divine nature is not just something for folks here who aren't followers of Jesus, but for all of us, for me. Preparing this message has caused me to go back to my wife and my kids and ask, what, are we, what practices are we engaging in this season? What things are we going to do in, just in secret as a family? Ways that we're going to walk this out? What are some things that we want to do publicly? What are some things that, that, that God has placed on our hearts? Or maybe that there are things that we want to grow and we want to become more generous. So let's just... Instead of thinking more about generosity, let's just begin to just follow this simple instruction and get rid of every place where we have two of something, we're going to get rid of it and just have one. Let's take a minute and just dwell on this before we come to the practice of communion together. Whatever it looks like for you to reflect, whether you want to close your eyes, look out at the stained glass, maybe it's like to, uh, put two feet kind of flat on the floor and that posture of surrender, open your hands and just ask, Holy Spirit, would you move? Or just to meditate a bit on the, those practices that you know of. Or maybe it's a commitment to know the practices. Like, I, I'm not joining a home church. I'm going to connect with some other people and begin to, like, walk this out. I'm going to go and have a conversation with my spouse or with my um, roommates, with my friends. whatever else God just wants to do, I just want to leave it open. A sermon is meant to start the conversation, not end it. So Holy Spirit, I pray that you would move in this space. You speak to those that are open, even those that don't know you as they just sit and reflect for a moment. God, I've just, I've seen you just waken hearts to your beauty. Would you do that here and now? Show us, Lord, how we might respond to this. What are the things you're inviting us, the commands you're inviting us to step into? out of the gate.